Welcome back, listeners. We've got a very interesting guest today. It's John Blackburn, and he has a heap of experience in defence and national security. Um, he finished at the Air Force. I think I might get John in a, in a minute to cover off on a bit more detail, but he, he finished in the Air Force a few years back as uh, Deputy Chief, I believe it was, and he has been involved since then in a lot of areas of um, national security and, and defence. Uh, I believe now is currently the executive member of the Australian Security Leaders Climate Council, I think that's what it's called, a climate group perhaps. Um, welcome uh, to the podcast, John. It's going to be an interesting chat, um, but do you want to give us a quick rundown of, uh, of kind of who you are, maybe a you know, 15 second quick rundown of uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, certainly, man. <laughs> Look, looking at John's CV, I don't think he can do it in 15 seconds. <laughs> no, I knew there, there was a whole lot of stuff that I would have missed in there. That's I thought, right. I'm never going to remember it all. 43 years in the Air Force, flew a lot of fighters, including the F-18, had great fun. Then I started to learn about logistics and how the world works after I retired, and that's when I got worried. So that's probably, that's probably a snapshot of it. I realised that the world doesn't work like you think it does when you're inside a, an organisation focused on doing something, and that's pretty common for most people. Hmm. No, exactly. Now, there's something we do here, John, um, at the start uh, where we just do a quick word association just to warm you up. Um, so it's, we're gonna, Andrew and I are going to fire six quick either words or, or, or a short phrase at you and just want you, your first response back. So, Andrew, do you have something to start off with? Or? Supply chains. Broken. <laughs> uh, fuel security. Uh, we don't have it. Black pudding. Oh, I couldn't eat it until I ended up once at Heathrow Airport when I was 60 and I thought I had to try it at last. And it wasn't bad. Haggis. Never. <laughs> Russian military. Surprisingly incompetent. Um, political planning or government planning. Uh, fiction. <laughs> oh gosh, there's so many, there's so many areas we're going to go now. I think this could be one of the longest podcasts ever. Uh, hopefully, we don't we don't take too much of your time. So, 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 so John, we. Uh, we we were we we both were uh, presenting last week for Victorian Farmers Federation, and so it was interesting to hear your point of view. It was all about you know food food well, security of supply chains. I was talking about it from a from a fertilizer point of view and a, and a grains point of view with the current conflict in Ukraine, and you were talking about fuel, mm. and fuel markets have gone absolutely bonkers. I mean, Matt, yesterday when I drove up to meet you, it was. $2.30 for diesel in Ballarat. So yep. I didn't fill up. I didn't fill up because I looked at the market and I saw crude had fallen. So I'm waiting for that lag effect to come through <laughs> so I could maybe get like a 190. And, and who, who would have thought, you know, six months ago we'd be thinking, wow, 190, that's a good price. So. Just to wait until China uh, opens up again uh, once it's got, I think Shenzhen or wherever is locked down at the moment. Just watch what the crude oil price does then. <laughs> so, so, what, you've got a few concerns about fuel security. Mm. What are they? Well, look, as I said, when I retired from full-time service, I was still in the reserve, I started doing a whole series of think tank studies and I looked at logistics because I'd made so many assumptions about it in my life. You know, somebody else is looking after it. Yeah, she'll be right. Uh, when I was looking at it, I, I looked at fuel as one example only of a lot of other things. And I was absolutely surprised, stunned, in fact, when I dug into it, and what I thought was 
hey, we've got oil in Australia, we've got refineries, yeah, it's all good. But as I started to dig into it, I saw we had some serious gaps. And part of this had come about because of this belief, uh, particularly in the liberal nationals, uh, neoliberal belief, that, look, markets can take care of everything from you. You know, let's keep government small, don't interfere, the markets will fix it. But then I started digging into it and realised that, for example, where today, we used to import, say, 20 years ago, 60% of our fuels, either as oil or fuel, it would come into the country, uh, the oil would go to our refineries, and the fuel, of course, we just consume. Today, it's over 90%. And in my view, by the end of this decade, we will be 100% fuel import dependent when our last two refineries close. <laughs> refineries, in the last 10 years, we've gone from seven down to two. And the contract, the subsidy for the government to keep those open is only going to go to 2027. Now, that's why I'm saying I'm pretty confident that by the end of the decade, we'll have no refineries. What also makes me say that is that about 2015, I've been running a campaign on this for 10 years. About 2014, 15, I spoke to the energy department and they said to me, look, don't worry about this. Uh, we don't think we need any refineries in Australia because it's cheaper to import refined fuel rather than do it ourselves. And I looked at this guy and I suddenly realised he was an economist. And I uh, uh, love him, but uh, not everything's just simply replaceable. And the ones I've dealt with, and very smart people, have zero idea about national security. It's just economics. And I said, yeah, but what happens if the supply chain's interrupted? Oh, the market will adjust. Um, and as we've seen over time, that's not the case. Next problem that got me very concerned is the last time we did a national energy security assessment. So that's looking at everything from electricity to fuels, you know, chemicals, a whole bunch of other things. The last time we did one was 11 years ago. A lot's changed in that time. It has. And when I was at a Senate inquiry in 2015, uh, I heard a classic statement from the lobby group for the oil and fuel companies, the Australian Institute of Petroleum. What a wonderful group they are. And what they said to the senators, it was not appropriate for the National Energy Security Assessment to use national security scenarios. They should only use market scenarios. Because I've been arguing, you can't just look at markets, you've got to look at security situation. If there's a war or a conflict or something else. And when they said that to the senators, a couple of senators came back to me and said, are they serious? And I said, sadly, they are. Is it just, is it just, is it just because, John, like for, I know there's been conflict around, and we're seeing a conflict now roll out in, in, in part of the world, but is it because within Australia we've been so fortunate, A, that we really haven't been kind of invaded ever in any real, you know, kind of, um, you know, in a modern sense, you know, militarily invaded or, or, and, and there's been such a long time since something like a world conflict. Um, are, we, are we just in a bit of a false sense of security? So people have forgotten um, what you should be doing to keep your national yeah. security but, but maintained? But, but Matt, that's probably the same around the world. Look, oh, at, no, look, no, at, no. look, look at Germany. No, no, we're, we're actually worse off in some ways. I mean, Germany's still been dealing with its post-World War II blues, and, you know, you know, we can't arm do things like that. So, yeah, that's a really important question. And I've been thinking about this for a fair while because... Um, I had an interesting conversation with Stan Grant at a, at a defence conference and we were talking back and forth and I said, the conclusion I've come to this is that Australia as a whole is a very, very complacent nation. And that's the title of our big report we did on our national resilience. Uh, everything we do, we react, but too little, too late, too short-sighted. And I said, we've got a lot of people, migrants, I'm a migrant, who came to this country from other countries where there was a national story or narrative 
about conflict. You know, they, they, they had to fight for their independence or they had been invaded. So think about it. Yeah, America fought for its independence. Now it's just fighting itself internally. Um, <laughs> if you think about Europe, well, my, my, my father-in-law was Polish. So, yeah, well, every 50 years, someone invaded them and wiped them, and they eventually got wiped off the map. But you think about the history of Europe and all the conflict there. You think about Asia. Well, what did the Western world do to them? And then all the conflict they've had. You think about India. What did the Poms do to them? Africa. South America. Australia is an interesting position. And what I said to Stan is I get the impression we don't have a national narrative of having to fight for our independence. I think Sean McAuliffe said on one of his shows recently, yeah, we woke up and suddenly we were a federation. You know, the Poms had given us the Australian Federation. Um, and I said to Stan, would I be correct in saying that the only narrative of existential threat in this country is with our First Nations people? They were invaded. Yeah. That's how they feel. They've had to fight. But the rest of us turned up, you know, people have been here a long time, um, but we haven't got a collective story about having to fight for our freedom. You know, the Brits we thought would protect us, well, <laughs> that didn't work when Singapore fell. And so we ran, you know, the Americans came and did it, thankfully, and then we were really paranoid about needing a big brother. And in 1951, we effectively uh, pressured the Americans into signing the ANZUS Agreement uh, and in response, we would then support them with, you know, the Korean War and absolutely everything since. But ANZUS is nothing like NATO's agreement. There's no commitment to fight supporters. It's a consult. So I think our problem comes back to what you said, Matt. It's been, for most of us, pretty, pretty stress-free. Uh, we haven't had to fight for anything. It was given to us with the exception of our Aboriginal people. And that is our biggest weakness. We're just too chilled. It's been a lucky country, I guess. Yeah, but when you actually read what he, uh, Horn said with a lucky country, it was actually correct. He said it's a lucky country, essentially led by particularly incompetent people, but we've got a lot of resources. And that's where we are today. We have resources you can't jump over. But I've got to tell you, our federal political system is broken. Years ago... Sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, I was going to say, with regard to that political system, is uh, like I've I've had a bugbear about kind of the big the big picture items, like the big planning items that need to be done, whether it's environment or infrastructure or you know potentially healthcare, education, some of those things. Well, that, you can't do that when it's a three-year term. Yeah, that's the point, and, and <clears throat> I keep coming back because my background um, is, is kind of economics and banking originally is where I started. So, and I look, you're not an economist, are you? <laughs> I, I did. I did study an economics degree, John. Um, but but but, but, he, but he's learning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now now I'm in agriculture, so that makes oh, me right. a bit more a bit more well well grounded economist. Yeah. Um, so now in that finance world where you have the RBA that are kind of you've got the board of the RBA that control interest rates, so it's not really a government decision in terms of you know manipulating monetary policy, and you've got experts in the field that decide as a group. And I just think, you know, is there a space for a bit more of that type of a model where you have, particularly for big long-term infrastructure projects or, or big kind of forward-thinking items like the environment, that we need to have consistency of policy through different election, election cycles? Yes. Should, we have, should we have, you know, a series of expert kind of think tanks or, or whatever it is that actually you know, kind of, um, you know, so, so that when there's a change of government, say, you don't get a change of a big policy that we need to have a long-term strategy on? 
I think you've identified the problem correctly. I wouldn't agree with that proposed solution. We used to have the ability to look forward. There's a really interesting paper by Treasury officials, which the Treasury says is not the Treasury's official position, but they wrote this in about 2018. Really is interesting. They said, if you look back at the Hawke government, the Keating government and the Howard governments, so both sides of politics, they took long-term views, particularly on big economic decisions. You know, when we floated the dollar, Howard with the GST and a whole bunch of design Keating did, it was not popular. It was not responding to the latest poll. It was not reactive. It was, we've got a problem. We have to do something about our economic system, our model, if we're going to survive. And if it wasn't for what those three governments did, we would not have got through the GFC as we did. Now, interesting, I, had, I was talking to John Hewson not that long ago. And he was explaining to me that, you know, prior to Hawke, uh, the Fraser government, there was a lot of discussion across both parties. What the hell are we going to do about the economics? And they basically came effectively a bipartisan agreement. So when Hawke comes in and implements it, there was no kickback, is what I was told from the Liberal side, because they'd been working together on what they could do. That's so, because it's for the nation. That all goes fine. Howard disappears and, uh, and Rudd comes in. And... I'm not blaming Kevin Rudd, but from, from that time, it seems that our federal political system became more and more short-sighted. Half the time, they were just stabbing each other in the back, so it was pretty hard for anyone to lead because they weren't going to last very long. And, and then effectively, in my view, after Abbott coming, that's the precipice where we went over the edge because he was destructive. He wasn't a leader. He was good at destroying his opposition and got in and started to go wrong. And we've just seen the mess continue ever after. So it's short term. It's really competitive about the next election. They, I mean, right now, there are politicians on both sides of the house that know we have to do serious things about climate, that know we have to do serious things about nuclear power. But nobody will step forward and say it. They want somebody else on the other side to do it so they can attack them. So what does this come back to? In our federal political system, it's not it's out of date. It's not able to deal with the complex world that we're seeing now that's, that's only going to get worse. And here's the other question. Have a think about, in our polit senior politicians in government, how many of those have any leadership experience? What they are is issues managers, by and large. And they manage issues in their terms pretty well. The public wants something. You make up a bit of rubbish, chuck it out. I've done my job. It's about getting the election done. But how many have actually had leadership where they've had to lead very large, complex issues? They've had to face decisions that chances are won't work, so you have to be accountable for it. Look at the Prime Minister. What leadership experience did he have prior to falling into the job? Mm. But, uh, uh, get, yeah, if we, but if we had he's, someone... He's, he's, maybe that, led, he's maybe led the choir. Well, he led the New South Wales a Liberal Party... <clears throat> And then he was a, basically a marketing guy for tourism, and that didn't work out too well with him when he got the flag. But do you think? Do you think though that the general population, are like, are we are too many people too busy watching, you know, that reality show? Married at first sight. Yeah. Or, or, or if a leader, if a leader that you described came along, would we recognise it and would they get voted in? Or, or have we gone too far down? The rabbit okay. hole of, of just you know being being bad at picking good we, like we, we look at the uk like yeah. we've had again we had the same issues there and the us probably even a lot of european countries yeah it's populism it's you know 
It's, I reckon you can probably track it back to Tony Blair, actually. Hmm. And yeah. it probably gone from Tony Blair right throughout the world. It's been this flash-looking, yeah. you know, sound and, bites, sound bites rather than... Is probably the, one of the most prime examples of stupidity getting into, you know, a, a prime minister's job. I mean, there's a lovely quote you can see on, on YouTube recently saying, you've got to understand, you know, the era of tanks fighting battles across the praise of Europe is gone. We don't have to worry about it. And that's the current Prime Minister of the UK saying that. So I think in the Australian case is it's because of social media and, you know, all this mechanism, all these pollsters running around, they've become very reactive. So here's the problem. People, as a culture, we're complacent, but people are so busy. I know, as I said, my brother-in-law and my sister are farming for four decades in Victoria, and I know what life was like for them. It was a continual struggle. <clears throat> you had debt, you had issues, all the stuff you're dealing with. They're exhausted trying to do that. <clears throat> they don't really have time to think about politics until ooh, the election's next week, I have to vote. Uh, so I understand that's why people are busy. Um, but I think the only way we get out of this is that people are getting more and more angry. Yeah, you know, the floods, the bushfires, all of which are fully predicted. Uh, I mean, Inflation. to say... Yeah, I mean, Barnaby saying this is a once in 3,500 year event is just stunning. But Barnaby also said recently, you can't possibly plan for something if it hasn't happened before. Now, <laughs> I know he might be there for uh, entertainment, but um, this is absolutely crazy because business plans ahead, defence plans ahead for things that haven't happened before. Otherwise, you're going to fail. So what I think is important in our country is things like you're doing. We're going to have to have a much, I guess, stronger public discussion, not led by the politicians, but led by the community and interest groups and business, because you're not going to solve this without a lot of business getting on board with community and unions. I mean, we've been involved with all these groups saying, are we happy with where we're going? And I think pandemics, floods, economic disasters, war, and now course that war is going to come back and affect supply chains and economics and it'll affect the energy transition uh we've got to take that irritation and anger you know as sean mccullough says mad as hell and say okay as a community what are we going to do we vote these guys and girls back in now there are some really good politicians don't get me wrong uh and some very capable ones i've got to tell you in labor you know i look at tanya plebersek and penny wong christina keneally and go Man, strong, intelligent people there. They'd stand up and drive it. And on both sides of parties, I come across some very capable politicians. But the backbenchers get frustrated. They say to me, we're only allowed to you know, discuss these three topics and you have to stay on the rails. Uh, so we've got to come back and say, that's not good enough. And as complicated as it will get, I'm keen to get a little more independence in because it will change the conversation that happens and it's going to force compromise and agreement across the board, different parties. So I think we've so, got to drive it. So one of the things that, that I find interesting is obviously all of the listeners to the AgWatchers podcast are extremely educated and, and knowledgeable about lots of world things. Mm. Uh, but I, I think that also compulsory voting is an issue as well. As somebody who comes from, from Britain where we have voluntary voting, I just remember that I did my... My duty for the first time after getting citizenship, you know, I rocked up to the uh, the voting line. I was in a queue behind other people. There was a, uh, a couple of youngish ladies, probably mid-20s, late-20s, and they were deciding at that point in the queue who to vote for. Yep. And 
the comments were there was they obviously had a bunch of flyers in their hand and a comment from one of them i'm going to vote for him because he's got glasses so he's obviously smart (laughs) (laughs) there are challenges with compulsory voting but i think there are bigger challenges when you don't so what you can do is you can get the political machines and the manipulators and the lobby groups because let's not kid ourselves there are very powerful lobby groups that actually drive the politicians and i've seen that you know Oil and fuel industry is a very powerful lobby group that drives decisions that don't make sense for the nation, but it makes sense for them in a, for business. And I understand what they're doing. Do I think it's morally right as a nation? No, but most of them are foreigners anyway. Then you know, the, most of our fuel and oil is foreign owned. Yeah, so they, they don't care about Australia. Let's be honest about it. So what I think with compulsory reporting, but if we can get more discussion in public and more education about the responsibilities that come with that. Otherwise, we're going to be manipulated by parties, but lobby groups. And uh, just watch what's happening with America and the way they start to manipulate the whole sort of thing there. I think that could be even worse. I think uh, we spoke about this before, Matt. Sorry, sorry, Matt. We spoke about this before, I think, in the pub a few times about how voting, you should have a voting card. And to get your <laughs> no, this is my this is my idea about um yeah no this is a bit controversial but anyway yeah we get Yannick's or something are we you get you get uh, a you get a voting card but in order to get your voting card you have to pass a test of having a it's a not a, re- it's not a, it's not an it's not an IQ test it's more a test to demonstrate that you have an you have knowledge of what's happening kind of thing so. It's you, not. You, know, you think we should have a card before people give birth to kids? Well, no, 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 no. It's more. It's more around. The, I think. The, the, I think it could <laughs> actually help. You know. No, 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 no. The idea is. The idea is. So it's not about just having smart people with a vote or something, or, or potentially. You know, it's it's about having interested people that understand. Like, engaged so people. Engaged people. Yeah, not not people. Not people are voting because oh that person's got glasses. Yeah. So, so like, if if there's, it's, it's a fairly simple, you know, kind of structured test that, that like just the, demonst- like the, like demonstrates the, like, you know some basic things like who the prime minister is or you like know, some, some like simple ones. A bit like the citizenship test. Yeah, but if yeah. If, if one of the questions was identify the politicians, then nobody would ever vote for Albanese. Uh, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but, mean, but that 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 gives you a score, and then based on the score. You get your your vote is it's like a like a preferential voting system where some votes count higher than others so so if you've got no idea who the prime minister is you don't know you know some certain basic things about you know you know the economy or don't say economics because you offend john (laughs) Um, but just some basic stuff if if you're one of those people that's got your head in the sand and or you don't watch any news and you don't kind of you know all you do is you know look at bloody that married at first sight show and, and all that stuff and you're just a bit of an nincompoop in politically speaking right you might be a good person then your vote should shouldn't count as much as you're, someone that you're actually such has. A, you're an such idea. a snob, Matt. This this sounds like a lovely idea in the pub after a few. <laughs> <laughs> but just just step back and watch what the Chinese are doing. So yeah. they've got this thing about social points or social points growing. So yeah. you get rated, and depending on the points you get, and you're marked by some local authority who sees it. Have you been a good citizen, right? And you do all this marking. So of course, people start playing the system. But, yeah, um, I think I prefer to come from the other way. And that is, given the problems that we're seeing, they're only going to get worse. I mean, these weather events aren't going to go away. We're going to have major problems in our society for the next couple of decades we're not prepared for. I prefer to put any effort we could into saying to people, what do you reckon, Um, and trying to get the message in education there. 
when I first started this fuel security stuff, I approached it like a military guy. So A, you couldn't understand what I said and everything was in acronyms. But I did some country, the Victorian ABC country radio talkback and I'll never forget this day. And I rang up and then Curly from Bonnie Doon came on. And he, he started talking and, you know, again, I spent a fair bit of time on the phone with my brother-in-law. Uh, and I had to try and explain to Curly what the problem was with fuel security. And so I just talked to him about, look, you know, I said, my brother-in-law's a farmer. Uh, back in 2014, even though we get told we got three weeks of diesel or something, I said the Altona refinery was down for maintenance and the Shell refinery at that time at Geelong had a power supply problem because of the Victorian power supply for it because then it went down. Silly me, I, I did say to something, but if they got all this fuel at the refinery, surely they got backup generators so they can run those to get the electricity to keep going. No, 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 they don't have that. So anyway, within two days, um, they ran out of diesel in Gippsland and Western Victoria. So my brother-in-law was talking to other farmers in you know, northern part of Victoria going, okay, so do we get our utes and our big containers on the back and go into New South Wales and try and find some diesel? Because if we don't do this, are we going to be able to get the crop off? So to my brother-in-law, you know, there's, say, $100,000, $100, $150,000 because it was a relatively small farm at the time. That's a lot of inf- issue. Hmm. To an oil company, $100,000... To lunch. I'm not, I'm not going to carry this. And I also got told at that time that by people inside the American-owned oil companies that they ran down the stock holdings at the end of the American financial year so they could report stocks at this level for financial purposes. Now, that time of the year just happened to coincide with harvesting. So that meant your resilience was worse at the time of harvest because they were playing silly buggers with economists and financiers in the States. So I had to talk to Curly this way and he got it. He said, mm. I thought, ah, okay. I actually learned a fair bit by talking to people who don't get the picture across there, but it's people like Curly, hopefully Curly might listen to this, that, that we've got to talk to because it's not just about fuel. When people realise the fertiliser supply chain and what's happening because we don't have gas reservation policy, you're going to get a lot more angry farmers, I tell you. So this is the thing. This is the thing I was going to just before we, we move on, Andrew. That but you mentioned John Houston's name before, and, and obviously saying that you thought the the rot kind of set in with Kevin Rudd. I think it was um, in that political sense. But my view is slightly different. That I think that it started actually with with the with us not voting Houston in, right? And 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 let hear me out on this one, right? My theory was that. Houston wasn't really what you'd call a classic politician. I think he was too honest for his own good to a degree. Yeah, right. So, and what I think, what I think a lot of politicians learned then when he didn't get voted in was that the Australian population or you know, the voting population at the time are somewhat mugs and that, and that, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily, or back then at least, we didn't want someone that was going to tell us the truth necessarily um, and be honest with us and open it up front. And, and he kind of signaled, by, by not getting voted in, he signaled to all the other politicians, you know, you, you don't have to tell uh, the, the population the truth. You can be a bit sneaky and underhanded. And I think that set us down the path of that style yeah. of politics. I think so. I mean, Houston's a very intelligent man. He's a straight shooter. Uh, respect what he's done. He, I mean, he writes opinion pieces in the, in the Saturday paper. Uh, and the last one he wrote last week, it was all about, hey, we can't just react. We've got to start preparing. Yeah, there's a problem there. And look, I think Turnbull's a very smart guy, but couldn't handle the politics and the games going on behind the scenes. And, and then you end up with the accidental PM. Um, so, yes, you're right. 
people see this and go, well, what the hell? But here's the problem. We can't give up on it because it's all of our security and they're not looking after it. Absolutely. We've got a fundamental risk. I mean, no <coughs> national security strategy in this company, country. We don't have one. Think about that. There's no national resiliency strategy. We had a national security strategy when Gillard was PM, but Abbott threw it away. Uh, we last had a national resilience strategy about a decade ago. So, you know, there's nothing framing it saying, well, this is how we're going to deal with our challenges and opportunities. And it's not just about, oh, the solution to this is buying nuclear submarines. Because <laughs> in 15 to 20 years, it's going to make China scared of us and we'll be right. It's not going to be about buying more tanks. It's not going to be about buying more fast jet airplanes. Well, for starters, you're not going to have the fuel to run these things on anyway. But we think, we try to treat the public like idiots, I think, from the political level, by saying, don't worry, we bought, we're going to buy submarines. Well, the third the third attempt should work. Um, and seriously, these politicians think they we're mugs, or the population's mugs. We've got to say to them, no, the military is important, but it's a very tiny military, and it's only a small part of our national security. You know what makes us more secure? If we're resilient and we can survive and run, even though other countries are trying to interrupt our supply chains, or we have problems, we thought it through and we're prepared. Remember, let's go back 100 years, all the stories about farmers. They knew that in the rough times, if you had to have some stocks of something to be able to get through, because we didn't have Bunnings in those days. Um, so it's about, well, what you look after yourself and your community. Uh, and that's about being resilient. We have to take that same model and think about how we look after us, ourselves as a country. Uh, but here's the other thing. Resilience nowadays, not just by countries, which other countries near you do you have to team with? Because if Indonesia falls apart next to us, so much for our resilience. We've got to, we've got to help work out how we can help them be resilient as well. And we've had those sort of discussions with New Zealand, for example. How do we team up and together look after the Pacific? Uh, no, yeah, no. Um, one of the things, one of the things I've been thinking of recently with all the, and we've had a series of, like you've mentioned before, climate disasters that are becoming more and more frequent, it appears. Um, and a lot of the times, and even with COVID, I guess, as well, which, you know, the, 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 the fallback position was to call in the army to help out yeah. with logistics yeah. and other stuff, which is, which is fair enough scenario, but it makes me think, and, and I'll, I'll CFA volunteer as well, and I've seen what's happened to the CFA in Victoria in terms of how, there's lost a lot of volunteers in recent years because of bad, bad kind of management, I guess, from, from the political classes. Um, now, and, and so you see this diminishing of people being in these roles. Do, do you think there's a case now where we should consider like a Swiss model or a European model where they have some level of compulsory, not necessarily always military um, activity? Volunteer like, like service. A, well, no, or in, in Switzerland they have, when you turn, I think, 18, you've got a choice of either doing yeah. a year or two in the military or a thing they call service civil, which is kind of like civil service where you go and assist people yeah, like, like, an SC, like an SES, yeah, like, yeah. or like even an SES or a CFA. Or, so you could choose, you know, it could be St. John's Ambulance type yeah, stuff. So, so you could choose. Yeah, so, so it doesn't have to be military, but for some they might like to yeah. do, like my son would love to go and you know, do that kind of one year worth of, whether you call it a gap year or something, yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it's compulsory for every you know, 18 year old or whatever to do a period of time. Well, whether it's in Singapore has it, a whole bunch of countries. Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is that something we should seriously consider? And, and across not just, like I said, military, but also yeah. like good, you, could, you could good, choose to do. Good luck getting that through the vote well, and through the, the parliament. <laughs> The way to, to get something in there is not make it compulsory. So there's been this discussion, and again, this thing about we're going to grow the military, the panicky announcement last week. But look, 
the military growth has already been planned for ages because we're getting new types of capabilities and equipment. That's already been there. But with the floods, the sense of, oh, here's another 18,000. The skill sets to respond to floods and fires are not in the military. They're in the CFA and the SES and the professional firefighters and the paramedics and the ambulance. But those are in the civil community. So let's have a think about how they use the military in the pandemic. Assisting at old folks' homes, carrying luggage at Sydney Airport for people going into quarantine. Policing, a little bit of policing. and, and uh, yeah. Now, when you talk about the scale of natural, it's not natural disasters, climate disasters that will get worse, uh, we're not going to stick under two degrees. That's not going to happen. So we've got to prepare for what you do there. Now, at the same time that's happening, there is a high probability that we'll be having some sort of regional military conflict or threat. So military's defence is very, very expensive to train and run. Let's focus it on that, and it can back up and help with natural disasters if it's not deployed or doesn't need to do it. But the only way that we're going to get the depth of capability in this country is what two previous chiefs of defence force said this last week. One is you know, General Sir Peter Cosgrove, and the other one was Admiral Chris Barry. Chris Barry and I are on this climate group together, so we talk about this a lot. They've just said we need something like a civil defence force, not in uniform. This is not in the military. It has to work funded centrally, but really it's about in your area. So it really has to be in the states and territories. And it's about paying people to become reservists after an initial period of training so they at the highest readiness level to go and support whatever range of fires, floods or other crises is going on. They're trained, so it's a bit safer to do it. If you look at some of the younger unemployment in regional areas, that could be a way of getting people some employment and skill sets. And it's about service to the community. Now, when you need it elsewhere, then it'll go across the border and do that, whatever you need to do. But it needs to be standardised across the country so it can move around. And I think their suggestion makes sense. If you put these things under the military, then what you're doing is you're putting a bureaucratic and cost layer on top of it. Because militaries are not cost efficient, I've got to tell you. There's so much committee process and bullshit that, you know, you've really got to focus it on this. You don't want to deploy them overseas. You want them to be Australia. And if you do it initially as a paid uh, volunteer, no, it's a volunteer to be paid, because I can't see how with this stuff getting worse, we can expect farmers and other country folks to go and fight fires and things for three or four months. Um, the whole businesses and lives will collapse. So we need to have a spread across a much larger part of our population. I think the way to do it is pay it. And, and especially when you've got those rural areas like the numbers of, like we've got larger and larger farms, which means actually less people in those areas. So there's CFA sort of, uh, CFA sort of units that are getting smaller and smaller. They're shrinking. Yeah. They've almost got 100% of the young men and women in an area yeah. and, and they're still shrinking. And that, that, that is an issue. And then you've got to look at, well, how do you equip it? So there was some stories the other day that, you know, these helicopters on contract for firefighting weren't called in to help with the floods. I don't know the detail of it, but you've got to think about years, you know, what we did, we will bring in helicopters from the Northern Hemisphere during their winter and we'll fight fires here in summer. Well, that's not going to work in the future because the fire seasons are getting longer and longer, both Northern Hemisphere and Southern. So let's think about equipment, helicopters, firefighting, flood response, crisis. And you know what? This is going to cost us money, but the cost of not doing it 
is going to be a lot higher. And you can see that where we are because no, Barnaby, these are not once in every 3,500 year events. These are going to happen much more often. Unfortunately, you get parts of the media like Sky News After Dark who will argue that this is not caused by climate. We get these floods and things all the time. It's just that crazy, greeny, climate activists are causing this. Um, that is what I would term strategic stupidity. Uh, if you were in denial for political purposes, which is what that is, then what you do is you stop this nation getting prepared. To me, that's immoral. Uh, and we have a serious problem we have to call out there. So let's, let's go back to the, the present day, yeah? Mm -hmm. You said there's no national security or fuel in Australia. Yeah? No, no, but there's no national security strategy, Yep. right? And there's no national resilience strategy. But but that's, that's not correct. And there might be a bit of a sarcastic tone coming across my voice in a second. But but we do have fuel security. We've got... No, 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 no. We, we've, got, we've got millions of dollars of fuel in the US. <laughs> So, so we're fine. I don't know. What, I don't know why you're so worried. Yeah, I had a, a shouting argument discussion with the energy minister on the phone on that one, and I said basically, yeah, look, stop treating people like stupid. So they've gone and bought oil to be stored in the U.S. strategic reserves in Louisiana, not because of our fuel security in Australia. It's nothing to do with that. We are the only member country of the International Energy Agency countries that fails to meet our obligations, what's called net import stockholding. It's a wonderful economic term. But what it is, is an agreement between these countries that in a crisis, we will, we, the group of countries, will release oil to the market to stop price getting out of control. And that's just happened. Uh, you know, we released our uh, stocks in America. Well, those stocks in America of oil were only bought to try and reduce the pressure on Australian government from IEA and particularly from the US, of not pulling our weight. Now, a day and a half of our consumption is diddly squat. So, yes, we've released it to the market. But as I said to Taylor, storing oil in the US when we don't have any Australian flagships that can move it, you would not ever think about taking that oil and shipping it. You'd buy it off the bloody market and release it somewhere. But the way we're going, we won't have any refineries to process it when it arrives in Australia. So we'd have to store it in a ship off coast. So this is about global market price fluctuation control. Nothing to do with actual fuel security in Australia. The minister knows that, but what he says is politics and it is fundamentally misleading. So, 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 why, so why, why, is the, why are these things kind of... Like Andrew and I, I think we like to think we're fairly well read on things, but some of the stuff you're talking about now is not things I've ever thought thought about or, or had knowledge about. Why are there not investigative journalists out there, you know, the likes of George Negus and, you know, asking oh, the hard questions that. of the politicians? Oh, well, we don't see them. Reports. I've talked to Four Corners. I've done, I was doing ABC Radio this week. No, they're out there. But what it happens is, you know, the, the minister now comes down and says, we have 89 days of net import stocks by the measures, by the way we calculated them. Right. So let me tell you about this one. Net imports, this is going to bore your audience, I'm sure. Here's, here's how they do it. You look at the amount of oil and fuel you import. You subtract from that the amount of oil you export because we, we export all this light, sweet crude off the Northwest Shelf because we don't have a refinery that can process it, right? So you end up with a net import figure. Then you divide that by the average daily consumption. This is all aggregated. It includes, you know, oil, diesel, fuel, lubricants, everything else, heating oil. 
you divide it by the average daily consumption, it says number of days of consumption. And of the stuff in Australia, it's on paper running something like 69 days. Now, it doesn't mean anything because if you try to stop exporting that oil off the Northwest Shelf, we've got nowhere to refine it. So you actually can't use it. On top of the 69 days, they add something like, I think it's 10 days stocks held offshore. That's a day and a half in the US and the others are tickets to purchase. So way of meeting your obligation of stockholding with the IEA is I'm gonna contract some of the Netherlands and I'll pay them a fee and they will guarantee to release whatever number of days of oil stocks in an emergency and then I'll pay them for the oil. So it's an option to purchase, right? But here's where the energy minister is really brilliant. On top of that, using his own calculation method, he adds in the stocks that are on ships coming to Australia, ships that we don't control. The IEA said to him, you can't count those stocks at sea because they're not under your control. Oh, does it matter? That's the way we measure it. So when I put this up on LinkedIn the other day, somebody came up with a, concept, a statement. I love this one. Well, I'm six foot tall by the way I measure it. It is, I mean, seriously? So what's the real fuel we've got? About, we average about three weeks of diesel and about four weeks of unleaded petrol. That's what we average. But that's an aggregated figure across the country. Why, if that was the case, did we run out of fuel within diesel within two days in Victoria in 2014? Well, at that point, we were down to 12 days of diesel. Remember what I said about reducing stocks at the end of the American financial year? Um, and it's not 12 days everywhere. You might have 20 days over here and two days over there, and there's no visibility of where that oil actually or fuel is. So that's why we're in quite a mess. And here's the absolute classic. A, a report came out from the energy part in the middle of 2019, an interim report. And they were trying to look at fuel security based on a, a task that came from uh, Parliament. And they said, hmm, the problem is we don't have a really good understanding of the, of the fuel supply chain to be able to make the assessments on this. That's in their report from the energy department that's public. We don't fully understand the fuel supply chain. The second classic statement they made is the legislation which allows the federal government to ration fuel in an emergency is out of date and it won't work in an emergency. So there's two things, right? The final report, was sent to the minister, and I understand from my political friends, it got to his desk in December 2019. He hasn't released it. He told me he hadn't released it because it was classified. Well, I talked to other people who say, well, no, it's because there's nothing meaningful in the report. <laughs> so if you release it, uh, you're going to look like an idiot. And I did say to the minister, if you release that, you know people like myself We'll go and tear it apart. So he's telling us we've got 89 days. Don't worry about it. And he said in an interview about the last two weeks, quoted by The Guardian, Australia has plenty of fuel reserves, you know, adequate fuel reserves. So, so what should Australia be doing then? Should we be stockpiling oil and having <clears throat> and encouraging refineries? No, well, the problem is when you're so far down, remember we've gone from 60% imports to 90% plus, and we've gone from seven refineries to two heading to zero. It's like the car crash is just about to happen. And so the first thing you can do is, oh, I should have bought a Volvo because the safety's better. No, that doesn't work. Uh, you brace yourself for the car crash and you work out what the hell you're going to do afterwards or 
to, to make the effect a little bit less. Stocks are the, the simple solution that, again, a lot of poly, we're going to get stocks. And the way to think about this is you have a supply, you know, something produces it, and a pipeline that comes to you, and then you consume it. Stocks are a spring in that pipeline coming towards you. So let me talk about toilet paper, right? So we produce our own toilet paper. It comes through a just-in-time distribution thing to supermarkets and people use it. Now, when people panic at the pandemic and go, oh, I might run out of toilet paper, and they rushed out and they bought all the toilet paper in the supermarkets. Well, the pipeline that comes from production to the supermarkets is not very big. So you can't shove a lot more toilet paper down the pipeline, right? You can only go at a certain rate. Hmm. We didn't keep any stocks. So we ran out of toilet paper and people panicked, even though there was no supply shortage. It was induced. Think about fuel. You produce it at one end and that can go up and down depending upon things like it's happening now with the you know, crisis war. And we consume at the other end. And the pipeline is just in time. And with, and with toilet roll, you don't have much demand destruction. No. You're always going to need it generally. Right. But what's going to happen, well, no, if you buy a Japanese toilet, which I've got, you don't need toilet paper, okay? <laughs> so the only thing I worry about is... A... Well, Matt's got a BD, so... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you must have a European background. But anyway, so if you think about this pipeline and imagine there's a spring in there, fuel stocks are a spring in the pipeline. So if the input coming from overseas varies, you can deal with it to a degree. But the important thing about fuel security is not just stocks. It's about a guaranteed minimum flow. Hmm. So if things go wrong, you want to be able to guarantee that I can still maintain, let's just say, example, 30% of our fuel flow is guaranteed by some other means, you know, producing it ourselves, doing other things, so that our society to continue to function. So the IEA net import figure is completely irrelevant to that. It's about global pricing. Stocks are not just the answer, they're part of it. Stocks plus production. Well, it's stocks plus guaranteed flow. Mm. And so when you've got the problem with fuel, okay, where do you start? You actually start at the consumption end. How can I get as much of my transport and logistics off imported fuel? Bicycles. Yeah, well, uh, where we're going to, and it's a mixture of a whole bunch of things. First off, what is a more fuel-efficient way of logistics and transport in the country? It's trains and ships. We know that we won't be able to meet the logistics demand in Australia purely by adding more and more trucks on the road. And we can't get drivers. We can't get drivers. So the average owner is 58. And I've talked to the trucking industry and said, when you look at the growth in demand, it's physically impossible for us to meet that with trucks. So you then got to say, well, what can I put on trains, which at the moment are diesel, but things like green hydrogen are already driving trains with ferries in Europe. And that's what we'll, we'll end up having to do. But also on ships. So coastal shipping... Transshipment, yep. Uh, and again, where that's going is great ammonia. That's going to be the future fuel for ships because it's no emissions. But we have 14 flag, uh, 30 flagships in Australia, I think it is, 2,000 2, tonnes and above, only four of which are capable of international trade, and they're LNG tankers. And so what we do is we let foreign companies come and manage our coastal shipping as well, which can vary as it did vary during the pandemic when shipping gets affected. Other countries, America, Vietnam, even a bunch of others, they mandate that coastal shipping will be done by nationally flagged ships of that country for security reasons. Don't you worry about that. We'll let anybody go through the, uh, the barrier reef and come into our ports. 
we don't worry about it. So first number one is how can I take a lot of that freight movement off the road onto trains and ships? Secondly, what other fuels could I use? Well, you could use electricity, batteries. You could use hydrogen vehicles. But look, economics of that is really going to be in like the trucks and the ferries and the bigger stuff. And ammonia, you're talking about you know, ships. So that's going to take decades. So we've got to transition ourselves to change the transport load. But we still need fossil fuels for decades. You're not going to be running around in a remote country on a battery and trying to plug it in somewhere. And you're probably not going to get green hydrogen supply out in the middle of whoop whoop. So we are still going to need fossil fuels for a lot of regional areas, for farming and machinery. So um, can we try and produce some of that ourselves? We, we still have oil, like Northwest Shelf, but we're going to need to look at gas to liquids and biofuels and a whole mix of things because there's no simple solution. So reduce, transfer the demand to some other method of transport transport the fuel use by some of that to, you know, basically stuff that's, you know, green hydrogen, whatever, and try and produce some fuels. We have a lot of gas if we would just have a gas reservation policy. Try and produce some fuels in Australia by other means. And I'm talking to the companies who are looking at that right now. And that means we reduce our import dependence on these foreign countries a lot. And if it's reduced, we can start to look at having contracts with countries that we trust. In other words, trusted supply chains. So, look, you, you've been talking about this for a long time. Clearly very passionate about it, yeah? Mm -hmm. The last, let's call it 18 months, we've had, obviously, the pandemic has destroyed the just-in-time supply mm -hmm. chains. Um, we're seeing that in, in export of containers of pulses and wool and yeah. whatever else. Uh, we've then seen, we've almost got to the end of COVID, and then we've seen Putin's uh, invasion of... Ukraine, so it's sort of one has led into the other. <clears throat> Are the politicians you speak to taking it more seriously, or is it still just ignored? I'll make one one slight suggestion to your picture of the scenario. This is not the end of COVID. Not by any stretch of the imagination. We're so tired of it that we think it is, but this is not the end of COVID. I mean, you've got fifty million people locked down in China. Mm, true, true, and. The pandemic that we're experiencing now and those varieties is not the worst pandemic that we were worried about for the last decade. So in 2019, I was looking at the effect of pandemics on shipping for the, the Australian Naval Institute. And I was talking about what could happen. And I was basing that upon the types of pandemics that lots of, including Bill Gates, lots of people around the world have been talking about for the last 10 or 15 years. There is nothing stopping that variant coming because the conditions that triggered this pandemic, things like um, incursion of humans more and more into remote areas where animals like bats that carry this, there's much more interaction. If we get that variant, thank God we've got mRNA vaccines nowadays, so we'll be able to rapidly try to do something about it, then we face a far more significant shutdown. So I know it's hard to say when people are so tired, this is not the end of COVID. This is a waypoint of the current batch. Mm. But when you talk to politicians, people recognise the problem, then they go, geez, how do we achieve this? Because you, you, you have to have a bipartisan and a national approach. And the general answer I get from both sides is, look, I appreciate what you say, but we're going to have to win the next election before we can address it. 
And that's both people in the Liberal National Government and in the opposition. I think yeah, from what we've been discussing, John, I mean, I know we've, we badged this talk as a talk about fuel, but clearly there's much, well, there's fuel's part of the narrative, but there's a whole lot of swag of massive things that need to be done. It's supply um, from, chain resilience, isn't it? Well, uh, well there's a bad thing. Look, if I was a farmer, fuel would worry the hell out of me, fertilisers would. So I know people in the fertiliser industry, and whilst there is some stock holding done in areas, um, there was a lot of concern last year when I was talking about, look, there's a bit of a problem with shipping here. If we don't get those ships of fertilisers in time and we miss that part of the season where you've got to fertilise your crops, then we're going to have a major impact on crop product. Noting that the fertiliser issues, not only out of China that gives the problem with AdBlue and things like that, we've also depended on West Sahara and there's a lot of fertilisers, as, as you pointed out, mm. other, Andrew, that come from Ukraine and Russia. The third thing I'd be worried about is machinery. Yeah, our import dependence on that is significant. And we've seen some farm machinery productions being interrupted by some of the weather events in the north of the US. Uh, vehicles, <laughs> try to buy a new one. Chemicals. Um, as we lose the refining industry, we're going to be importing everything. Can you imagine importing hot bitumen? Oh, we already do. Um, and the whole logistics <laughs> system is a problem. And as I said the other day when we spoke, come back out of this and go and look at maritime trade. And this is what the Navy Institute asked me to do uh, in 2019. They wanted someone who wasn't a Navy person to go and look at it through military eyes. When you think about maritime trade, if all these imports, 98% of all our trade by volume is by sea, and we don't have any control over it, you know, only four, four LNG tankers. And you think about what, if you're in the farming sector, machinery, fuels, vehicles, fertilisers, a whole bunch of stuff is coming in by sea, and exports, whether it's meat, crops and everything else, goes out by sea. So we've seen what's happened to shipping lanes. When I talk to the bigger shipping companies, they say, look, here's the other bit. Australia is not on the main routes hmm. for maritime trade. So what will happen, and it is not just pandemics is going to get us. What I was very concerned about was, uh, apart from conflict, is an, a loss of credit. So a major economic crisis where you lose credit. If you lose credit, then ships are, are bought on credit, they're operated on credit, and the stocks are bought on credit. So when major shipping lines have had problems in the past, we've seen instances where the ships of that shipping line are arrested in port by the creditors. I've done that once before. Right. So <laughs> just think about this. Not only conflict, which is a worry, not only pandemics, which hasn't gone away, but we're heading towards an economic crisis that's been triggered, accelerated by the pandemic. Yeah, we have the world's highest private debt level yet again. Our public debt levels is not as bad as others. But if we get a major economic crisis, that has the potential of taking out large parts of the maritime trade. Now, we're not on the main route. So if they contract because of a lack of ships and credit, I'm told that the shipping coming to Australia and the trade is pretty high demand but the reverse flow of that shipping is not as economically viable. Look, we've already seen that in the last year. With, with containers. containers, containers with, yeah, with, exactly. Con like there's no, there's containers at the moment, basically. If you, uh, we've got a chart I've put on Twitter. I think I put it on Twitter this morning, actually. And it shows basically the price of containers around the world. <clears throat> but it's divided into containers going into China and containers coming out of China. Yep. And there's two very... Containers are basically coming out of China are worth an absolute fortune. Going into China, they've not changed. 
Yeah. Because the trade flows are basically every piece of plastic junk that we have comes out of China. Yep. But there's not much going in there. Yep. And there's and oh, trade iron flows. Oil. A lot of iron ore, basically. Iron ore, but it doesn't go in containers. <laughs> and it, so so we have this sort of trade flows that are just focused now on that one direction. Huh. And and it's a big challenge for legs of pulses. Like yep. we have we have lentils and chickpeas that go into the subcontinent. Container companies don't want to go from Australia to Singapore and Singapore to India. No. They want they want to go from Los Angeles to China to Los Angeles to oh. China. <clears throat> Maybe so Europe. Tracks doesn't matter what we're producing in the country anymore. You're not going to get it out. And the other thing is because we can't get stuff in, we'll stop producing. It's just absolutely straightforward. Uh, but again, the number of people that don't understand, and I had no idea of this before I started to this particular thing in 2019, and the Maritime Industries Australia, I've had a lot of discussions with, they've asked me to come out in public and say things about it. Um, people who are specialised in those areas get it. But when I say this stuff to senior politicians, what are you talking about? It's right. So, John, so like I said before, we, we, this is more than just fuel, right? Yeah. We, we can see the picture there. Um, let's just say hypothetically, um, you know, Scott Morrison, after the next election, whoever, the, whoever the, who's in charge after the next election, they call you in on day two of the result and they say, John, give us your top three things that we have to do right now. Like, you know, broad, broad brush kind of big things. What do we need to do to get, to get on the right track? What are the three key things that we need? I've already had that discussion with Albanese <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Bowen and Brendan Ogham. Okay. Now, we triggered that conversation. Chris Barry and I was only in Dunlop um, on the thing we talked about climate, but we said you can't address climate by itself because it's completely linked with economy and energy and everything else in our society. It's early in the whole. And so what we said to them is, look, there are three things that we think are important for society to be resilient. Number one, you have to have shared awareness and a shared purpose in your society. So you have to, it's more in a military, you have to have an intelligence picture. What the hell's going on? What your risks are? But also you've got to document all your assumptions. Because if you don't do that, you don't realise if you're making a dangerous assumption or a stupid one. So number one is let's be very honest about it. So the very first step that we said in terms of climate is a climate risk analysis. In other words, how bad could this get in Australia? And Put emissions aside for a moment. What is it we're going to have to do to prepare for these types of climate impacts, floods, fires, and everything else? How bad could this get? What the hell should we do? This is basic military forward analysis and planning. Number two, if you're prepared to do that, and that's not only about climate, you look at your risk because you want to produce a national security strategy, which is about all aspects of our society and our relationships. So that's the first thing. If you don't have a strategy or plan, how can you point society anywhere? You'll just run around in circles. Oh, that's what we do. Now, the second thing, if you've done the awareness, is being you've got to have a team. You can't do this by just the federal government. It has to be all of our governments in the country. You can't do it without industry. It's impossible. You can't do it without the unions. You can't do it without the community. So we have to be able to say, look, it's going to be difficult, but we're going to work together for the common good. But what teaming really requires is trust, which is a balance between competition and collaboration. Trust in our political system at the moment is at the federal level is probably the lowest it's been in a long time. Now, if you're aware of the problem, you've done the analysis, the risk analysis, and you've got a, 
you've got a strategy, we're going to do this, and you're prepared to get enough people together to do the team, then the next thing is the really important one. It's where the action happens. And you have to be prepared. In other words, you do your preparedness, like this is what the military does, preparedness. And you, you have to be able to mobilise your society when you see the indicators of something happened. Okay, how do we actually mobilise society to be better prepared? And when something happens, you go straight in and do it. Now, if we'd done that, we would have realised and accepted that things like the Lismore floods that happen are coming. Now, there is no way you'll have a magic solution and everybody's going to be picked off the roof with their own personal helicopter. It ain't going to happen. But we could be doing things. It's going to take us a decade to be better prepared. A decade is a bit longer than three years. So be honest about the problem and do the risk assessment, have the strategy. Be prepared to compromise and work as a team. And then also take steps to prepare the society for what's about to happen and mobilise industry, community and governments to work together for a purpose. And the teaming's not just Australia, it's with other regional countries. But so I guess... I guess the problem is as well is what you're talking about requires tough decisions. No, it requires leadership. And that's when I came back. But, leader, but leadership, true leadership, leadership, leadership requires tough decisions. It does. And look, you know, when you first start doing it, when, you know, I had commanded fighter squadrons at wings and a deputy chief. It's sometimes really daunting uh, when you have to make decisions with limited information and um, not based upon a feedback poll of what people want you have to take a tough decision. The higher you go in those sort of things, you then get more constrained by committees and a lot of other noise, but it's hard. You will also make mistakes. You can't possibly get everything right. And that's going to be difficult. But again, nothing matters if you're in a leadership position, if you can't convince the people you are trying to lead and support, because they're the ones who are actually gonna do it, not you. You have to have them trust you or respect you enough to follow you, even though they think you're a bastard. Um, you know, you, you've got to have a relationship with them because it's the people and the industries and others are going to do it. Now, it's a complicated issue, but we don't breed that. We have a lot of people who come from uni, they'll be political staffers or they'll be in the party mechanisms or they'll go to a partisan think tank and yell at each other. And then they get, poof, you know, nominated into a safe seat of the parliament. They might be good at saying the right words in public, but nowhere in there is anything about learning how to lead and take hard decisions. Now, there are people, I mean, Jim Mullen's got a huge amount of experience in the military, you know, retired major general, but he's basically stuck on the back bench and told to keep out of the way. Now, I'm not saying you should be putting ex-military people in there, not at all. What I'm saying is there are a lot of leaders in industry. There are a lot of leaders in the community. Think about, you know, to get a, a CFA thing working properly, you've got to have a bit of leadership there. You don't sort of all go out there, oh, shit, we're at the fire. Did anyone bring water? Uh, you know, you need to work as a team. You've got to have leadership. So we have people, we have leaders in society. We seem to have somehow ended up with very few of those getting into the political system. And now I've seen exceptions. Look at Aubrey Wodonga and uh, I forget who it was, but, you know, the, the sort of independence, the Indy from India, the, the independence that came and said, we've had enough of this rubbish from the party. We're an independent. We're going to look after our community. We're going to consult with our community. That is leadership because it's working with the community, not telling them what to do. And that's why I'm quite keen on seeing more independents get in who've had to have that conversation and show a bit of leadership. But it takes time. It takes a lot of, lot of stuff and it takes a lot of painful experience to get there. That's what's missing 
And I think when we see all these crises and things going on, that complacency level in Australia is going to start fracturing. Hmm. And they'll first get, yes, there's five stages of grief or whatever it is, or seven stages of grief. There'll be a lot of anger. We're seeing that with the floods. When that calms down a little bit, go, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, the first step is don't just go automatically into the voting booth and vote for somebody you've always voted for in that party because your dad did. Don't go and vote for them because they look good in glasses. <laughs> vote for them because they, they have convinced you they understand there's a problem. They've convinced you that they, whilst they don't understand everything, they're going to try and do something about it. And it's not business as was. There's no such thing as going back to business as usual or business as was. It changes. It's going, it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years because, like, there's always been a balance between, like, we, we've gone to the stage of we don't have much local production of, it, of pretty much anything. But we've also been able to access cheap goods, cheap consumer goods, yeah. cheap, cheap everything. So by moving back to domestic production or or more secure supply chains in effect and, and, and moving our way through the last probably 50 years of economic yeah. development that is a cost there is a cost to that yeah but I, it's not everything it's key <clears throat> things look if you don't get a supply of a particular thing you love um black pudding black pudding or yeah. you know you, you that would be a, that would be a disaster you can't get your gucci underpants or something uh well then you'll survive but there are things you have to have but i, I heard this statement out of a, a united states as uh, a, a doctor in the united states talking to their review of medicine supply chains and the united states commission in 2019 said their dependence on china for medicine supplies mm. was a national security risk and the, and the statement they used there the lowest cost comes at a very high price in a crisis Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I teach people is um, I've got to tell you, the cost of not doing this is much worse. Yeah. Geez. Scary. No wonder, it's a, it's no a, wonder Mad Max was set in Australia. It's true, but I'm, I'm strangely optimistic. And the reason why is that in our studies, the last two years, we had 250 people involved. This is everyone from ICU specialists, doctors in hospitals, uh, we had a vice chancellor of the universities, we had researchers, industry people. We had farmers, uh, we had people from all sorts of sectors, union leaders were in there. I've got to tell you what, after that two years, um, that 250 people, we have some really smart, very capable people in this country. We've got a lot of resources. Uh, we've got a relatively low public debt level compared to the rest of the world. So you've got the people, you've got the resources, there's only one thing missing. And that's leadership, a strategy, and a plan. So I'm optimistic that the more pissed off we get with this bunch of loons in Canberra, well, they're only in Canberra occasionally, of course, <clears throat> the more <clears throat> fed up we get to this, there is a solution. Either they start thinking about the nation's good instead of their own, and their party's own, or we demand candidates who are prepared to do that. And it may and, be from the two conventional parties, but it's not—it's not the off nutters. I mean, I'm not talking about you know United Australia parties or Craig Kelly and things like that. I'm talking about intelligent independence, as we saw with Indi, and mm. we saw with Zali Stegall, and we've seen with a bunch of other ones. Uh, we've got to demand it because, in the end, we collectively as Australians, because of compulsory voting, hold the key. We've just got to use it. So I reckon. I reckon that's a pretty good end note to, to leave on it's a good good ending message uh, so we'll probably leave it there and uh, it's been really really fascinating and i think it's 
a lot of our readers or listeners, sorry, they don't read this podcast. Uh, a lot of our listeners are, are really concerned about supply chains the last 12 months because of, like you said, fertilizers, chemicals, machinery, yep. fuel. And the other one you didn't touch upon, labor. Yeah, there is a big problem. And uh, and so we have all these, and I, I've spoken to a lot of a lot of journalists in the last couple of weeks, and saying we don't have any inputs in agriculture that aren't close to record levels, if not record levels. Right. And so that's that is a big concern. And the only saving grace farmers, I'm talking more about grain farmers, is the fact that we have high prices for our outputs. Yeah. Uh, but those prices can change like that, and and that can wipe away your margin fairly quickly. Especially if you can't actually export them. Well, there's a challenge. So, so I think that was a fantastic podcast, and thanks for thanks for coming along, John. And no, uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get you along at the next disaster. <laughs> well, I think it's been uh, yeah, it's been one of the uh, more illuminating ones we've had, Andrew. He's someone we're so knowledgeable. It's been a real pleasure, John. Um, some of the stuff you said was um you know yeah it makes you stop and think seriously but hopefully um hopefully this one gets out there amongst the uh amongst the listeners and they push it around because it's, it's it's some fascinating stuff you've put well, in it's, um... matt you're you're okay because you're a prepper anyway you've got your veg, veg <laughs> you've, got, you've got you've got your veggie garden and whatnot oh it's part of the part of the strategy you got to look you got to plan you got to look ahead you know yeah. so you've got to do it and when, when worse comes to worse, uh, I've even got a satellite messenger system. So even if the whole comms goes down, I can communicate with anybody. But no, thanks for thanks for that, guys. It was good to talk to you. Um, look, I'm strangely optimistic. We've got we've got smart people, we've got resources, and we've got the ability to control who gets into parliament if we choose to do so. So let's give it a go. Right on. Uh, hopefully, John, you can be running as one of those in, in, clever independents. No, 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 no. no. I, I was asked to nominate for the Senate by some particular groups, and I said, I think I can be far more effective and still be alive uh, outside the system, uh, prodding it uh, and talking honestly to people. Because once you're in a party, there, yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah, keep doing it. Good to talk to you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you when you've got nothing on. Chuff it out.